Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can trust in you. That when everything around us falls apart, that you are faithful. As we look at your word here this morning, would you, would you speak to us? Um, would you reveal your truth to us here today? Would we be able to walk away from here with greater confidence in your word as your spirit works in our hearts and, and builds and grows that within us today? Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bear sheet. That's the very first word of Genesis in Hebrew. That's what the Hebrews referred to. Uh, that's the, the, the title when they wanted to talk about that first book, book of the Pentateuch, the five books that Moses wrote. They refer to it as bear sheet. Bereshit means in the beginning. When the, the Jewish scholars that wanted to translate the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, they used the title Genesis, which means origins, beginnings which we then have translated or transliterated into our English as Genesis. Genesis is the very first book of the Bible, and it is all about beginnings. In Genesis, we see the beginning of time, of space, of matter. Right in the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created time. God created the heavens, space. God created the earth, matter. All those things did not exist until God spoke them out. So, so Genesis about, is about the beginning of space, of time, of matter. It's, it's all about the beginning of life here on earth. It, it's the beginning of, of God's revelation of Himself. Genesis is the beginning of sin. It tells us of the beginning of death and decay. But it also contains for us the beginning of life, of healing, of restoration and redemption. All of that is contained within the very first book of the Bible. And, and it is an essential part of us to be able to understand all the other theological implications that come through the rest of Scripture. If we get this part wrong... It messes up all the rest of our understandings of, uh, of what it means for Christ to come as our Messiah. What it means for us to, to be born in sin. To be dead in our sins. To need to be rescued from our sins. All of that 
has its foundation here in Genesis, in Bereshit. We know that it was Moses who wrote Genesis. There are some, uh, some modern-day, and I guess probably modern-day meaning in the last hundred years, maybe a little bit more than that, there have been, uh, there have been some, some textual critics who have looked at Genesis and have, have undermined the, uh, the uh, uh, confidence that some people have in the fact that it was Moses who wrote it. There's this, uh, what's called the documentary theory, which, which would suggest that, that rather than Moses writing this, that, that, that it is a compilation of a whole number of different authors that, that wrote different parts of this uh, at different times throughout the history of the, the Hebrew people. And it, and it wasn't until after the Babylonian exile that there was, that, that there was a, 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 a scribe, maybe even somebody like Ezra, who, who brought all the different pieces together and edited it into the form that we have today. I disagree with that perspective. Um, there's a number of reasons why I disagree with that. Um, first of all, we have internal evidence. There isn't any place where Moses signs his name in Genesis so that we, we know it. And actually in Genesis there, there isn't any particular reference to Moses because Moses doesn't come on the scene until after, until into Exodus. Uh, but when we look at, at the, the books that, that Moses did write, there are a number of places where he refers to God instructing him to write these things down. To, uh, to record these for the people of Israel as they go forward, as, as God is drawing them out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and into freedom and into the promised land. Probably one of the, uh, the, the best for us is, uh, is out of Deuteronomy 31. And, and feel free, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be jumping around all over different places in Scripture here this morning. Um, but Deuteronomy chapter 31 and verse 24, we know that Deuteronomy, this was Moses' last sermon to the people of Israel before they were to enter into the promised land and he was to be taken up by God and, and to, uh, to have his life ended on the mountain without ever having reached that promised land. And so Moses is very intent on pouring out everything that he can into these people before they go on because he knows they're going to have a hard time on the other side of the Jordan. He knows that there are going to be temptations, there are going to be false idols, there are going to be religions, pagan religions that are going to surround them, that are going to try and pull their focus away. And so he wants, he wants to do everything that he can to help these people understand and, and to keep their eyes focused on God, on Yahweh, who will be faithful, who will lead them through. And so he talks about uh, the importance of of that single-minded focus on God. And so in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 24, we read this. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law 
in a book to the very end, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the ark out of the covenant of the Lord, take the book of the law and put it at the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may be therefore a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. <laughs> Such encouraging words. But when, when Moses says that, that, when it says there that he took and, and finished completing the writing of the law, that was an encapsulation of all the first five books of the Old Testament. It wasn't just the Ten Commandments. It was all of it, including Bereshit, including Genesis. And so we, we have internal evidence that it was Moses who wrote all those things down, that it was he who recorded all that. We also have other witnesses throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, those who who were writing about the law, writing about Moses, who affirmed that it was indeed Moses who wrote those words for us. Um, there, there are all kinds of references throughout the Old Testament of the book of Moses, the law of Moses. Uh, it, it, it is strictly uh, uh, attributed to Moses to be the one who was the author of all of those. But uh, one, one reference and just an example that we can look at is in 1 Kings 1 Kings chapter 2. So again, if you've got your Bibles, feel free to turn over there with me. 1 Kings chapter 2. We're going to start reading at verse 3. So this is the, the account of David um, charging Solomon with, with taking up the crown um, after his death. And, and, and again, last words, right? Important words that, that these are the crucial things that he wants to communicate to his son before he passes on and, and leaves the kingdom in his hands. So in, in uh, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 3, let's start, we better start reading verse 2. Ah, let's go right to verse 1. Why not? When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth, so be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in His ways, keeping His statutes and His commandments, His rules and His testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Why? That you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That Yahweh may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to the way they walk, to walk before me in faithfulness with all of their heart and with all of their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. David recognized that it was the law of Moses. And again, that includes not just the Ten Commandments, not just the, the rules and the regulations that are listed in there, but indeed the entire first five books of the Bible. The New Testament writers also acknowledge that it was Moses who wrote um, Genesis. And we can read about that uh, uh, in, in a number of different places. In uh, 2 Corinthians 3, Paul, who is writing about 
Moses' face having to be veiled after going in and talking with God face to face in the tabernacle. He says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Talking about how there are still those that are part of the Jewish faith who are, who are, are unable to see God because he has veiled their eyes. But he points to that it is uh, reading Moses, um, those accounts that Moses have, has recorded for us in the first five books of the Bible. Probably for me, most significantly, is that Jesus himself affirmed Moses' authorship of the first five books of the Old Testament. Uh, turn to, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, you'll notice as you turn there, the last book, the last chapter of Luke, Jesus' last words. Again, the importance of these last words to, uh, to followers. So verse 27, it says, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all how the scriptures, the things that were concerning himself. And then drop down to verse 40, 44. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. See, Jesus wanted them to know that it was Moses' law that revealed that, that, that his life was a fulfillment of all that God had said would happen throughout Scripture, right from the very beginning, right from Bereshit all the way through the prophets and the writings even in the Psalms, that all of it was pointing to him. There's other places that, that Jesus also referred to the law of Moses and the, uh, the writings of Moses. But there are a couple of places that I think we need to take special note of here in our time and day because he also gives warnings of not believing in the writings of Moses. That, there, that, that when we discount those writings, that we get ourselves into trouble. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verses 46 to 47. Let's start at verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever believes has eternal life. I... Make sure I've got the right. Am I reading the right? I'm not. That's why. I was on chapter 6, not chapter 5. That'll make a difference. Let me try that again. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who does accuse you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? See, we live in a day and age where people are are discounting the accounts of, of what Scripture says is how things began. Probably the first 11 chapters of Genesis are the most contentious ones for somebody who, who has a, a naturalistic worldview that, that instead of seeing God as the creator of all things, they would suggest that all things have, have come through a, a random, random process of, of natural movements of, of physics, of chemistry, of biology, and, and that there was no supernatural, in fact, there is no supernatural hand that, that is at all active in this world. There is no super ha- supernatural hand that can impact our lives. And so, with those, with that kind of a worldview starting up, they, they, they look at, at what they see in the universe, what they see in the, the geology, and what they see in the, the, the biology, the taxonomy of, of life here on earth, and they discount the fact that there is a supernatural hand that is involved in all of that. And so, in order to understand that, they have to create these ideas of, of millions and billions of years that it takes in order for those natural processes to to have what we see here today, because they, they have to explain what's going on. And so they, in order for that to happen, they have to introduce millions and billions of years to try and explain what we see in the world around us. They have a really strong voice. They've been very effective at swaying the, the, the understanding of our, of our world towards that kind of, a, of an explanation of how things are. And so for most of us, we went through school, and, and those are the things that we learned about how the world came to be. And for somebody to then come and say, bear a sheet in the beginning, God created it creates all kinds of tension. And I have heard it myself. People would say, well, if we as Christians really try and emphasize what Genesis says, a, a, a literal translation, a literal understanding of what Genesis says, we're going to be mocked in the world. 
Because the science, the, the, the prevailing wisdom that is out there speaks against this position. And so in order to, to, to keep our witness, we need to try and, and take what the world says as truth and try and match it to what we see here in Scripture. And so there's attempts at, at trying to fit millions of billions of years in the first chapter of, of Genesis. Jesus' warning here is crucial. If we don't believe Moses, how are we ever going to believe Jesus? See, there, there are theological implications to millions and billions of years. There are important truths that we understand about who we are as humanity, about how we relate to God, that if we try and introduce millions and billions of years, it throws that all out. There is no first Adam. Or if there is a first Adam, there still is years and years and years of death and decay before Adam ever sins. And that throws our understanding, that, that undermines all that, that Scripture has to say to us. Jesus also in his parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, when, he, when he puts words in Abraham's mouth, when, when the rich man there in Sheol, as he, as he suffers the great torment and, and asks Abraham to, to send Lazarus back to, to his brothers to, to give them the truth, to let them know that, that all the things that, that Moses said are true and they need to guard themselves against uh, the, the selfishness that he is now suffering because of. And, and what does Abraham say? If they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If we discount all this that Moses has written for us, all that he has recorded for us, Even Christ rising from the dead is not going to convince us of His truth, of His salvation. It's significant and it's important. And these warnings, we need to take them seriously that, that unless we are willing to, to, to read Moses in the way that he was originally, that he revealed th th for us through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're going to miss the boat on what Christ has to say to us. And we're going to misunderstand. So, it's a fair question. How, especially here in Genesis, how, how can we trust Moses when he wasn't eyewitnesses of creation? All of these things that, that, that happened before the life of Moses... How can we trust that what he says is true, that it isn't just some kind of myth that he maybe picked up from some other culture or something that he dreamed up in, on his own? How can we have confidence in these words that Moses recorded for us when he wasn't around to actually see it? It's a fair question. First of all, 
One of the ways that Moses was able to tell this story was because of the oral tradition and, and perhaps even the textual tradition of sharing these stories family from generation to generation all the way through the history of the Hebrew people. Uh, let me just back that up. One of the things that I find always amazing when I look at it, because as, as you read through the stories of the accounts of, uh, of the first people there in Genesis, um, we see their long lives and all that kind of stuff, but, but it, for me, it's really helpful, and I don't know if this is going to work. Let me go back here and do this. Um, it's really helpful to be able to look at the timeline of all of their lifespans um, in... There we go. All lined up together. To me, this is absolutely astounding. We, we know that, that, that early in, in the earth's history, that people lived a very long time. It's hard for us to wrap our head around because that is completely out of our, uh, out of our experience. And when we get to this, I'm going to talk a little bit more about why I think these long lives are possible and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But, but just for today, one of the things that, that absolutely astounds me is, is how accurately we can trust the oral tradition because the oral tradition had eyewitnesses that lived an incredibly long time. If you look at the life of Abram, way down here, he was born probably, according to this, about 1950 years after creation, according to the, and we'll get to a little bit more about how we get these numbers and stuff from, from generations when we get there. Um, when Abram was born, Noah was still alive. In fact, Noah's son, Shem, I, I did some math here this week, Shem actually outlived Abram by about 35 years, give or take. So Abram was entirely possible that Abram knew Noah that he spoke to Noah. More likely even, very probable, is that he knew Shem. Uh, Abram was born after the Tower of Babel, and so the, the, the great dispersion of peoples happened, and so we don't really have a record of where everybody remained. We do know that Shem moved off in, his, his, in, in uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, 10, it, it gives us the table of, of nations, where all the different brothers moved and where their descendants moved around and, and how they moved. And so we know that there was a, a great movement that was going on. Um, and so it's possible that Shem moved from a different place where Noah was. And, 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 but Abram would have lived probably very close to the same area, probably the same town even, 
as Shem. And so he would have had the opportunity of hearing from Shem all that happened in the great flood. You look at the life of Shem, he was still alive. He would have been probably in his 60s or so when the flood happened. And so he was still alive at the same time as Methuselah was alive. Methuselah was, I got this written down someplace, was about 250 years old by the time that Adam lived. So Abram talked with Shem. Shem would have known Methuselah. They would have lived in the same area, would have talked and would have heard the stories from Methuselah of the stories that Adam told. We have three degrees of separation. From Adam to Moses. All kinds of generations that fit in there, but three degrees of separation. That the story that Adam heard from Shem would have been the stories that Shem heard from Methuselah would have been the stories that Methuselah heard from Adam. You can believe that Adam was highly motivated to be very accurate in in warning his descendants of the mistakes that he had made, of talking about the wonder of this great God who had created all things, of the, the beauty of the garden, the wonder of walking in the garden with God the Father. That he would have passed that kind of passion on to Methuselah, who we know was a righteous man, who lived right up into the the time of the flood. Methuselah would have been, again, motivated to pass that on because as he saw the degradation of of the society around him, that he would have wanted to pour into the life of Noah and of, and of Shem to encourage them to walk with God. Can you imagine how, how important that kind of conversation would have been for Noah? After seeing the devastation of, of humanity's sin and rebellion against God and the consequences of that, He would have been highly motivated to be able to pass that information on to his children, perhaps even Abram. I I, I don't doubt at all that that part of Abram's willingness and his faith in in trusting in God to go out on this adventure, to, to go to a land that he did not know because God had called him, was in part because he heard the stories of the great adventure that Noah and Shem had endured and had gone through and heard of God's faithfulness of how he had, who had sustained them through the great flood. And so Abram, part of his conviction, his ability to be able to, to go out and head out without knowing where or, or, or what was happened because he knew God had been faithful. He had heard the stories about God's faithfulness in the past. And he willingly went out and then passed on that knowledge, those stories to his descendants. Can you imagine, and I'm taking far too long with this, but, but it's important. Can you imagine how important it would have been for Abraham 
to pass those stories on to his kids. After he had received from God the word that, that, that God had chosen his family to bless all the nations. That they had a special purpose that through him that God would send that Savior that, that Adam had been told about right at the very beginning. How important was that for, for Abraham Abraham? to share that with Isaac, and Isaac then with Jacob. And then as their, their lives continued, as Jacob ended up in Egypt because of the famine, following Joseph and being cared for there, and then as things started to go south, as, as there was a, a change in the attitudes of people, his his. Well, you see that happening all the time, right? In, in people who immigrate to other countries. It, it's so important for the parents to help their kids understand what life was like back in the old country. To, to share those stories. That was part of why the, the, the Israelites, the, the, the children of Israel, lived in, in Goshen. They were in a small community that, that was exclusively theirs, it says in, in Genesis, because they were, they were shepherds, and shepherds were kind of looked down upon. And so they were part of this ghetto that was separate from all the Egyptians. And as Jacob saw all of the gods that were around them there in Egypt, you know he would have been determined to help his kids understand the stories that he had heard from his grandfather, Abram, who had heard the stories from his great Great, 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 great grandfather, Shem, and so on down the road. That oral tradition would have been strong in the lives of Israel. There is no way that they would have survived as a people through 400 years of slavery if it hadn't been for that identity, that oral tradition, telling of the faithfulness of God proclaiming that God had promised that He would use them to bless all nations, to know that there was hope, that they weren't destined to, 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 to slave in the mud and the muck and the mire of, of, of building bricks, but, but there was a, a rescue that was coming, and it would have sustained them through all of that slavery until the time when Moses came to rescue them. I say that, that there's also a possibility of a textual tradition, of, of perhaps even a, a written recording of, of some of these accounts um, that Moses drew from as he was writing about Genesis. There are some historical details that he includes in here that, that really don't make sense um, that he left unchanged and don't really make sense as him just saying it. Uh, one, one example, Genesis chapter 10. Um, Genesis chapter 10, this is the, the table of nations uh, that describes the movement after the Tower of Babel of all of the, uh, the children of 
of Noah and their descendants. And, and as, as it's being described here, as Moses describes where they moved to, Genesis chapter 10 and I'm looking at verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerara, Gerar, as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. So those are all names that we don't know anything about, like who knows where all this stuff is, right? But... But in the middle of that, Sodom and Gomorrah. By the time Moses is writing this, Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed for about 500 years around. Why would Moses say that, that their Canaanite um, lands extended in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah when nobody knew where Sodom and Gomorrah was? Or if they knew where it was, it wasn't like a place, it wasn't an actual landmark or anything like that. It was just this place that had been destroyed for 500 years. 500 years. Canada hasn't existed for 500 years yet. Why would he be using Sodom and Gomorrah as landmarks when they had been erased from the face of the earth for such a long period of time? It's likely that Moses had some text that had been written long ago that described this movement of people in the direction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he just used that and copied that as a part of his telling of the story. That's, that's my guess. Yeah, I guess it's a guess. We don't have any record of that or anything like that, but it seems to make sense to me that likely there was some kind of written oral tradition uh, that Moses was drawing from. That being said, we also know that Moses was inspired by God when he wrote all of this. I mean, we don't doubt that God gave him such specific details as the dimensions of the tabernacle that he was supposed to build, with the intricacies of the description of each one of the different utensils that was to be made, the, the, the size of the curtains that were to be put up in there, that God had given such precision in, in detail of that, of, of, of the laws and how to, to work together. And we don't believe that God could also give him a listing of all of the names of the generations that came by and, and, and an accurate description of how God actually created the world in those first six days. So can we trust Genesis? Absolutely. Absolutely. So what was the, the purpose for Moses to write Genesis? I'm going to get this out of my eyes so I don't blind myself. First of all, God told Moses to write this down. That's a pretty good motivation to do it. 
But also Moses knew that, that this ragtag family that had been bound in slavery for decades, maybe even centuries, that God was taking these people and He was going to establish them into a nation with all of the, 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 uh, the struggles and, and, and all of the, the pitfalls, all of the mistakes that they were going to make in establishing all of that. And he knew that that if they were to be successful, they needed to have a, a strong foundation in who they were and an even stronger understanding of who God was, His faithfulness in their lives. And so giving them this sense of identity, the very same things that had sustained them through that time of slavery, he knew that going and starting this nation, there was a, there was a danger that, that all of that would be lost in the generations. Even as things got easier in life, they were going to forget all of the history and the, the, the tradition that, that was there in their lives. And so he wanted to, to accurately record for them God's faithfulness throughout the span of humanity, throughout the history of humanity, so that going forward, they have, would have confidence that God would continue His plans and His work in their lives. With that kind of a purpose, accuracy is important. Making sure that the things that He records are precise, are real, aren't based in, in myth or legend but an accurate reflection of who God is and who they were and what God was going to be doing in their lives throughout the rest of their history. That purpose was just as vital for the people of Israel as it is for us today. You see, if we lose sight of that foundation of the the faithfulness of God, the way that He has worked throughout the history of humanity, the promises that He has made to us, and importantly, the way that we have failed, the way that we as a, as a race, as, as, a, as a species, has rebelled and turned our back against God time and time again, and how that has gone in our lives. If we lose sight of that, we will lose our connection with God. We will lose our understanding of our need for a Savior. So that purpose is just as vital for us today as it was for Moses and, and the, the people of Israel as he was sending them forward. So with that in mind, we are going to go forward into this book with a perspective of, of, of understanding what God was trying to reveal. What, what are the things that God wants us to know about who He is, about who we are, and how we relate to Him on a day-to-day -day basis?
and I, I am unapologetic in my literal view, my literal interpretation of Genesis. The way that it was written, it was written as a historical narrative. It is not Hebraic poetry or, 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 or uh, uh, apocalyptic metaphor and, and symbol. The language that is being used is the very same language as we would see in Chronicles, as we see in, in First and Second Kings, as we see throughout the rest of, of, um, of Genesis. I don't see those first 11 chapters being any different. And so we are going to go through and, and try and understand what God wants us to know as He's revealed it in there in, in those scriptures. And it's my hope that as we secure our foundation in understanding what God has revealed about Himself, that we will be able to walk more closely with Him. And that our testimony in this world as unpopular as it might be, will bear much greater fruit than we ever could through our own efforts to try and make this more palatable to a modern ear. These are, are wonderful words. They are words that bring us life. And I am really looking forward to this opportunity of, of studying with all of you and building that foundation of knowing who God is and what He's revealed to us. Let's pray. So Lord, as we embark on this study of Your Word, of your bare sheet, your beginnings. I pray that you would sharpen our minds, that you would soften our hearts, that you would empower us to embrace and understand these wonderful words that you have revealed. And that through that, Lord, we would be far greater witnesses and testimony into this world. That the more, more centered we become on your foundation, the brighter the light of your truth in our lives, shining into the darkness of those that are far from you, that, that that light would then draw many others to come to know you, as unpopular as it might be, as uneducated as it might seem. I thank you for these words. I ask that you would bring us life through them. In Jesus' name, amen.